Hello, Cubby. Hello, David. How are you doing? I don't, I don't, I don't know why I've called you David. I don't think I've ever called you that before. I'll take it. I'll take it. That is my, my given name. Uh, so, hello, dear listeners. We are here with a, a special full-length interview uh, with the, the one and only Eric Deggins, uh, TV critic for NPR, and more importantly, the man who wrote a, a, a very long and interesting piece about why The Wire is the greatest show of all time, uh, kicking off from that, uh, that BBC poll that was published uh, a few months ago. Yeah, and that poll um, was rated and opined on by all the TV critics in the world, and the why was the best. So, I mean, you knew this anyway, because you're listening to this podcast, so... <laughs> yeah, but now it's fact. Now it's fact. Yeah. Now it's fact. And Eric is a great listener, um, great interviewer. So, let's uh, listen to what he's got to say about the why. We reached out to you... Um, to ask about the article, that's about the article, why you wrote it and what your thoughts are about the why in general. So I think the first thing is, I mean, you're, you're an American and we can tell by your accent. How did you get involved in what? writing this what? article? <laughs> What's <laughs> all this then? <laughs> is that me? You mean me? I know, I know. It's like, it's like listening into a mirror, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> so how did you write this? How did you come about writing this article um, that's kind of boiled down the results of this, of this mega survey that the um, BBC did speaking to like <clears throat> TV and film critics from like 50, 40, 50 different nations. Yeah, yeah, it was interesting. So like basically um, I got this, I got an email for the poll just kind of out of the blue. Uh, I didn't really know anybody at BBC Culture that did the, the poll. Uh, but I thought it was an interesting question to ask, you know, like what are the best TV shows of the 21st century, and it had to be TV shows that started after the after the turn of the century. So some of the things that some of the ones that you would normally think of, like The Sopranos or maybe The Daily Show, um, they they couldn't be considered because they started before 2000. So um, so it it took me you know a good you know 20 30 minutes to kind of sit down and make a list and and come up with what I wanted to put into the poll. So I thought, wow, that's that's kind of an interesting, you know, thought exercise. And I didn't think anything more of it. And then they circled back and asked me to write the story. I think they asked me to write the story because I did a piece when uh, The Wire was first released on HD, uh, where I went back and I rewatched a lot of the uh, episodes in high definition. And I talked a lot about how prescient the show was, particularly in how it predicted the failure of the war on drugs and how it talked about sort of the death of American cities and the death of labor and, you know, um, all, all these things that it was talking about. And uh, in particular, I talked about in that piece for NPR, I talked about uh, these things that I also talked about in the essay, which was, uh, you know, this speech that one of the um, um, uh, lieutenants gives to um, an up and coming sergeant where he sort of says, you know, policemen, uh, because of the drug war, policemen have come to see the people they're supposed to be protecting as uh, opponents in a war. And they're just they're just uh, taking occupied territory and they've forgotten how to police. And, um, and then I, I talked about the opening scene of the whole series where uh, McNulty, the lead character, is talking to uh, a guy who saw another guy get shot and killed at a, at a, at a dice game. Stop buggy. And, yeah, it's not boogie, and uh, and and that scene is a perfect sort of mission statement for the series because it introduces you to uh, it, it. It tells the viewer this is an environment that you might not be used to. These are characters who think differently than you. These are characters who talk differently than you do, but they have a code, and they are people. And we're going to ease you into this world, and you're going to learn a lot more about um, you know sort of this urban environment and the cops and how they intersect and but but it's going to be different and, and 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 these are the things that we care about we're talking about um, you know the new American city and its underclass and how it's crumbling and 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 how people live in that we're gonna that's what we're going to talk about and 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 it's it was kind of amazing to me looking back that that they would do that because you know the wire came along it's hard for people who are used to the modern media environment to realize this but the wire came along uh you know before on-demand television was much of a thing 
you know, so they were writing these, and I, and, you know, I talked to David Simon about this. I interviewed him uh, f- for the piece I did for the BBC, but I, you know, I've interviewed him over the years. I've talked to him since The Wire was on the air. And, um, you know, they, we talked about how they were writing the kind of television that really was meant for on-demand platforms, <laughs> you know, because you need to be able to go back and rewind and, and you need to be able to watch, kind of binge watch and see how things connect together. But they were writing they were writing that kind of television at a time when you had to watch it much more conventionally. And I think that's one reason why the show has taken off in popularity since it's been off the air because now people can watch it and they can binge watch it they can watch three or four episodes in a row and they can see all these storytelling strands kind of connect in a way that was harder to see when you when when the show was on the air and you had to watch it week to week and when it wasn't airing new episodes it was hard to to uh to watch it so um so so you know i mean that's a long answer but but basically they knew i had been writing about the wire for a long time and they knew I had a connection to David Simon. and I interviewed him several times. And, and there wasn't much time to do the piece, so they needed somebody who knew the show, and they needed somebody who maybe could get to David. And so they asked me if I would do it, and I was happy to do it because it had been a while since I sat down and thought about The Wire. But, uh, but you know, as you guys know, it's an amazing show, and it, and it rewards, uh, you know, ongoing thinking about its themes and about its episodes. So I was happy to do it. I want to go through your next box theme. This is also comes uh, not long after yep. Mark K. Williams passed. Um, and this is a, a big blow for, for fans of the show and him as, a, him as an actor and, and person, it seems. And um, I don't know, can, uh, do you have any thoughts to say on Michael K. Williams in particular? And, and Omar Little as a, as a character. We're not going to probably go into so many characters that's but I think it's an important one just to touch on. Uh, well, Michael K. Williams, obviously, yes, he was amazingly uh, talented. Um, but he was also, like, like his um, rise to prominence as a result of being on The Wire was a good example of why The Wire was, was as successful as it was. Um, he was somebody who was from, he came to TV acting in an unconventional way. Um, he had been a backup dancer for artists like uh, Madonna and George Michael, and he'd been in videos. Um, but there wasn't really a sense that, that he could be an actor. And, you know, uh, of course, he had a huge scar uh, down his face. And so um, he wouldn't have been, he wasn't the conventional kind of looking actor, even for black actors. And back then, you know, African-American actors especially, I don't know what it was like in England, but but in America, um, it was uh, harder for black actors to get high-profile TV jobs because the TV networks were hesitant to put on shows that had too many uh, non-white characters in them. Um, and, and, and uh, you know, I, again, I talked to David Simon about this when I, right before I wrote the piece for the BBC, and he said one reason why... The Wire had so many great actors like Michael K. Williams and Michael B. Jordan and Clark Peters and, you know, Wendell Pierce and, um, you know, on and on and on, you know, Clark Johnson, you know, all these great guys, all these great actors and actresses was because, um, you know, they weren't working as much as they should have been (laughs) because, uh, you know, more conventional TV shows weren't hiring them. And so I felt like Michael K., was like the ultimate example of that. You know, here was a guy who frankly would never have had a career in television if he had had to do it the conventional way. But um, David Simon and The Wire was able to showcase him in a way, and HBO really was able to showcase him in a way um, that he was able to do other things. And then he, you know, he he uh, he had a great turn on Boardwalk Empire as well, uh, playing a character who was uh, also a gangster but a very different kind of gangster than Omar Little was. And uh, and I think it allowed the industry to see what he was capable of in a way that normally a, a guy like that would never have gotten the chance to show what he was made of. And so that's what's so amazing about Michael K's story. And then, you know, ultimately he goes on to do Lovecraft Country again for HBO, where he gets to play this closeted, um, black father in the 1950s 
who's also connected to this family that's wrapped up in this supernatural um, kind of um, you know crisis, and and he gets to play something that's grounded in realism. Um, he even goes back in time to the Tulsa Race Massacre, um, and he also gets to play something that's sort of fantastical and rooted in sorcery. And and you really get to see his range um, in in that part. And he was nominated for an Emmy for it. So. Um, of course, it was a blow to lose him. Um, he uh, had talked in the past about how, um, you know, playing these demanding roles put him in a weird place psychologically and that they were a strain on him. And it seems like maybe his role in Lovecraft Country was kind of tough on him. Uh, and uh, and he, he was frank about his problems with substance abuse. So, um, you know, him passing away uh, through what seems to be an accidental overdose uh you know it's <clears throat> unfortunate and it's sad um, um but you know fans and friends knew that he struggled with these issues his uh, his whole life so you know we're just lucky to have had him when we had him <clears throat> and uh and uh you know the wire is a great example you know it it was a show that kind of existed outside <clears throat> of hollywood's um traditional structure um it's one reason why um, they didn't get that many Emmy nominations when the show was on uh, because they were making the show in Baltimore. They were using these actors that were English or actors that were like uh, like uh, like Michael Kay, who, who um, you know, weren't really on anybody's radar screen. Uh, and, and David Simon and the folks who worked on the show, I think of the writers particularly, um, you know, kind of enjoyed their outsider status, you know, which I think also kind of pissed off Hollywood a little bit. So... Um, so, so, so it was nice that the wire could could feature these people who would normally uh, never get much of a shot um, in traditional Hollywood. I mean, definitely, it's famed for having a lot of local talent um, and also people whose stories were based, who uh, you know, were taken and made made into you know, woven into the wire, like um, um, the deacon who's um, who was inspiration for Avon Barksdale. Um, yeah, 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 exactly. exactly. You know, and um, yeah, the Omar character was based on a real person. You know, yeah, Donnie Williams, um, Donnie Andrews, Felicia, like, who, uh, who, yeah, who Felicia, uh, Pearson. You know, who mm. um, uh, who was on the show. You know, was also also inspired um, a character. So so uh, and th and that's one thing that David Simon also talked a lot about to me, not just for the BBC story, but um, over the years about how, you know, he was writing people. When he was writing characters in The Wire, he often was write, was thinking about specific people. So uh, he never worried about writing a stereotype or writing something that was inauthentic because he was writing about people that he had encountered as a police reporter working over 10 years working uh, for the Baltimore Sun. Um, and I think that's why most of the characters feel authentic um, because you can tell he's not just... He's not just making them up, but but it is interesting to look at the cast of The Wire and see, you know, British actors, um, local actors, um, actors who were not on Hollywood's radar screen and just needed a showcase to show what they could do. Like that was ninety percent of the cast <laughs> were those was that mix of, uh, of performers, and then <clears throat> you had a couple of people like Amy Ryan who kind of snuck in there, uh, who. Uh, uh, who were traditionally successful in Hollywood, but uh, but managed to to be down with the wire too. Get in there as well, and people like uh, I guess Method Man as well have been well known in other other arenas that come into the wire. Um, but one uh, one thing what you touched upon there was uh, the stereotypes and and talking about um, I know you talk when you said people, you talk about specific people that David Simon encountered. But one thing I really enjoyed about the wire and going back to Omar Little, and also Keena Greggs, is, is when you write about people and they're not being stereotypes, these are, for me, I, the first two times I can remember seeing LGBT characters on TV where the whole character wasn't a fact about that they were gay. It was just a part of their life in the same way that for a non-LGBT character, that's, it's allowed to be part of anyone else's life. And I think that must have, I think that must have formulated, formed, you know, change a lot of people's perceptions of uh, gay characters on TV because they were just doing their thing and Kim was cheating on her partner and Omar Little, he wasn't 
he wasn't strutting around that people would expect a gay character to do in, in petitioning TV. And that was just like, guys, this is how the world is. Um, it doesn't have to be your whole character if you are LGBT or etc. And I think that's, that was such a fantastic, uh, fantastic yeah, idol. Yeah, yeah it, it, absolutely. And, and, you know, the thing that's interesting to me too is, you know, like I, I grew up in a town called uh, Gary, Indiana that is uh, just uh, east of Chicago um, across uh, the state line. And, um, you know, it was a pretty tough neighborhood, um, all black, um, very poor. And in that neighborhood, the worst thing that you could call somebody was the, uh, a homosexual. Like that's the worst. Uh, if you if you used the three letter F word to describe somebody, then you were fighting. Uh, that, that's the next thing. Uh, so to have a character like Omar, who uh, is powerful, who rips off the drug dealers that everybody in the neighborhood is scared of, he stands up to them and takes their money. And, you know, the mention of his name is enough to send people running away. And, and to have that character be the one who is also gay and out about it. He isn't trying to hide who he loves uh, or that he loves men. And, um, and, you know, in an odd way, like the neighborhood accepts it. Like that's Omar. Right. You know, in, in a weird way, I don't think any other I don't think any other character could do that. <laughs> you know, they, they, they accept it from Omar because he's Omar, you know, but but it was um, it was a way of redefining black masculinity on TV in a way that was um, that was um, evolved and complex and I think I, I don't think anybody. I mean, there were a few people who criticized the that um, that storytelling choice, but but for the most part, I think it was hard to criticize that character because he was so unique and he was so authentic, and um, and it redefined you know what a black character, what a black male character could be um, on a TV show. And and again, so there's a, there's a kind of symmetry that. You know, Michael K. Williams would run, wind up playing a closeted gay man in in uh, one of his final roles for television on Lovecraft Country. Um, it, he was constantly, I think, working at redefining these types of black male characters that we thought we knew and showing us new depths to them and showing us um, new ways to think about them. Uh, whether it was Omar Little on The Wire or it was uh, Chalky White on Boardwalk Empire or the character that he played um, uh, on that uh, that limited series set in prison. When, um, when they see us. Uh, yeah, huh? Oh, well, when they, when they see us. But no, I'm talking about the limited series that was set in prison uh, oh. with uh, Riz Ahmed. I, I can't remember the name of oh, it. Oh, the, the, uh, the Night of. The Night of, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, uh, these are the in, in every case these were characters that we had seen before that maybe you thought you had a take on what they were like, um, you know how smart they were, how perceptive they were, and he always found a way to surprise you uh, when he played these characters. And so, um, you know, that that's that I think that's the uh, you know yet another reason why it was such a tremendous loss because he had a way of making us see these characters that would normally be stereotypes in other actors' hands. He, he had a way of making them layered and complex and interesting and, and making us think about these men that he was playing and redefining what black masculinity was. And, um, and in, 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 you know, both of those characters, you know, Kima Greggs and, and Omar Little redefined, um, you know, uh, you know, or sexual orientation and, and black femininity and black masculinity uh, on that show. I just want to take a step away from the wire for a couple of minutes, Eric, uh, to talk. I'm, I've got your list here. Uh, so everyone who's listening, go to bbc.com for slash culture. Um, and you can type in the greatest TV series of the 21st century and you get a list of all the different journalists um, and the, the TV shows they they ranked uh, and Eric's. Um, I've got Eric's list in front of me. Number one is The Wire. Um, surprise, surprise. <laughs> um, I just want to run through quickly the, the rest of the list because I, you know, I, I love, I, you know, I love looking at these lists and um, and it's often the source of you know, debates or inquiry for other people. Which what what are your favorite TV shows? 
Um, so number two, you have Game of Thrones. Um, I'm sure it features on probably on this, on this list as well. Um, one thing I'm going to say, I think HBO still seem to be kicking ass, really, don't they? Even, even in spite of um, Netflix and some amazing Netflix shows and amazing shows on Apple TV, I don't think they've premiered yet. Uh, Amazon Prime and traditional uh, broadcast media, broadcast TV show. HBO's going down this list and, you know, a list I've made alongside. HBO is still super prominent. So Game of Thrones, um, which I thought, you know, great. Uh, Breaking Bad, which AMC, AMC made it, you know, got AMC here with um, Breaking Bad and also Mad Men, which, which I think you find a lot of the people's lists. Uh, Lost, uh, is an outlier for me. wasn't that big a fan of it myself. <laughs> and there's not much comedy in this list um, for many people. Yeah. You've got The Office. Mm-hmm. Um, you've got The Office. And I would have, they wouldn't allow me to do it, but I would have put both versions That's of The same. Office in, nice. in one in one um, in one list in one uh, part of the list in one notch of the list. I would have put them both together. I think that would have been fair enough. I would have allowed that. I would allowed that if I ran the BBC. I would. <laughs> I would have given you that. That privilege. Um, number seven, Veep. Um, magnificent. Absolutely magnificent. Um, the Crown, I've never... This, see, this is the thing I've, I've not got into. Um, doesn't interest me that much. But I can see... I think this is something from people on the other side of the pond that are a bit more interested to see how royalty... Yeah, see, you, see, you probably grew up with these stories that they're telling mm. on The Crown. But but us Yanks, we don't we didn't know any of this. <laughs> we didn't we didn't know any of this stuff. That, that 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 episode about the mining town that was buried in the where the 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 school was buried in the sludge that came off uh, off the off the mining off the mine, uh, and had how the queen sort of resisted showing sympathy publicly over it. Like we had no idea that it happened. I'm, I'm sure you, you know, you guys, you know, it'd be like um, talking about, you know, Watergate in America. But, but we, yeah. you know, yeah. we, we had we had no idea. So that was a very affecting and powerful episode. I, I will explain, you know, while you're reading through this list, what what I was trying to do is I was trying to pick shows that would balance. Number one, I wanted to pick shows that had a tremendous impact on television. So it wasn't it wasn't uh, so much about me picking shows that I was a huge fan of, because uh, there are shows that I liked a lot more than Veep and Lost that did not get on that list. I, I'm, I was a huge fan of Fleabag and I really enjoyed it. Yeah. And it made a, it made a lot of people's lists. But I don't think Fleabag changed television the way Lost did, uh, and I don't think Fleabag changed television the way Veep did. And so for me, it was more like, okay, how impactful was the show on the TV that we're seeing now? How successful was the show? Um, how how tough was it to make the show? Yeah. Um, and then how and then how good was it? How much did I enjoy it? So even though you know Game of Thrones, um, you know a lot of people again a lot of people like to slag off that show these days, but what they achieved for oh, television. I- was you know movie level production in every episode mm. for you know uh, a, a ton of seasons, and 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 so you you just have to and, and that changed the course of television. We're seeing you know this Lord of the Rings series that Amazon is doing that may end up being the most expensive series on television, and we're seeing Apple TV's version of Foundation, which is like incredibly. Um, you know, has is filled with eye popping special effects and just looks beautiful. And they've spent so much money on the production. I mean, those things wouldn't have have existed if Game of Thrones hadn't proven that it was worth spending that kind of money, uh, and that it was possible to get that level of of realism and and spectacle on a TV screen, and that viewers would respond to it. So, um, so that's you know, that's some of the reasons why I picked some of those shows. I'm not necessarily, uh, I mean, The Wire was number one because to me it brought all those things together it was it it changed television in ways that no other show did um it was prescient and and groundbreaking in a lot of ways and and i love it uh you know i'm a huge (laughs) fan of the show so so it it made number one because it brought all those things together but uh some of those other shows i named were much more about their impact on television than whether or not i personally you know would sit down and watch them now because I think I, I love that impact thing, and I think the cultural impact as well. Because the why was never, and still hasn't. You know, if you if this is a list of the most popular, as in 
how many how many views, views yeah yeah the wire wouldn't feature on there but no. the wire and also madman there the cultural impact of these shows is very phenomenal. much so very much Absolutely so phenomenal. and then with the wire you know the one of the things i talked about in my essay was just look at all the actors who are on the wire who are now who've not gone on to do amazing things mm. i mean you know dominic is, is on the crown <laughs> for example <laughs> uh but dominic west and 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 uh idris elba and mm. michael v jordan and michael k williams and you know there there are i mean easily um <clears throat> uh, up to you could name almost two dozen actors who were in the wire who are now like doing bigger things and uh, are major names in hollywood yeah. And, and I just don't know too many shows that you can say that about um, that haven't been on. I mean, even even if you look at something like Grey's Anatomy that's been on the air for, you know, something like 15, 15 years. Um, even they, I, I think, don't have as long a track record of stars who went on to do other amazing things as as, as The Wire did. So I think it's um, mainly Sandra Oh, isn't it? Um... Well, I mean, you know, you could... Uh, I mean, I'm not a big... Uh, student of that show. Sandra Oh is certainly probably the, the most successful uh, mm. alum from it. There's there's several people who've left the show and gone on to do other things, but I, I couldn't name two dozen actors. And and no, I almost named two dozen too. in my in my BBC piece from uh, people who've been on the wire. So um, so yeah, it was just a very special show and, and it brought all these different things together. Um, but to me, if you're talking about like greatest, that was the term, greatest shows mm -hmm. of the 21st century, you got to be talking about shows that change the course of television in addition to being really entertaining and being really, and being somewhat popular. And, and so, um, you know, uh, that to me, you know, like some people said, you know, why isn't Rectify, which is the show that was on, uh, I think it was on Sun Sundance, I think it was on the Sundance channel, uh, a show that was really sort of... Um, you know, like a lot of people know television liked it when it was on, but it wasn't that popular and it didn't really mm -hmm. change television or, or even a show like The Leftovers, um, which was on HBO and was popular and won a Peabody Award when I was on the judging committee, um, even though I wasn't a, the hugest fan of that show. Uh, again, that's a show that, you know, wasn't quite that popular, didn't really seem to change television. It was well done, and there's a lot of people who love it, but 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 does it rise to that level of really being, you know, uh, all those things at once? Yeah, uh, Leftovers is... No. I'm literally, before I spoke to you now, I'm going to watch Leftovers for the first time. Yeah, um, so yeah. I'm up with three seasons. Yeah, I think it's a great TV show. It doesn't hit me in the same way as others have done in, in your list, even. Um, yeah. I can see why people take to it. It's a, uh, and in the same way like Game of Thrones, it's it's telling this magical realist story in a way that is engaging for people that they haven't necessarily had the opportunity to do so. I'm sure Lovecraft Country did the same for other people as well. Um, yeah, you know, well, the thing about the leftovers, not to spend a lot of time on it, but the thing about the leftovers is that it's very much about grief, and there's mm -hmm. not a lot of shows that spend a lot of time on grief because it is such an uncomfortable. Uh, place to be in and um, <clears throat> I did a story um, last year um, as the pandemic was starting to unfold um, about uh, there were a lot of TV shows that seemed to be kind of in the air about grief in, in that moment um, um, there was this uh, limited series called I Know This Much Is True uh, where um, Mark Ruffalo played twins uh, and uh, one of the twins had a serious mental illness and uh, the other twin was all wrapped up in rage and grief and trying to take care of his brother. And, um, you know, so there were a lot of shows around that time. Uh, Dead to Me was on, um, um, was that on Netflix? Netflix, yes. Um, and then there was a show on uh, Facebook Watch called Sorry for Your Loss. So, they, so there was a bunch of shows that were about grief at a time when I think a lot of people were grieving because the pandemic was was really starting to, to take hold. And, um, <clears throat> but that's unusual. <clears throat> TV doesn't often center stories on grief because it is such a painful process and, and it is so depressing and, uh, and it is so um, tiring and, uh, uh, and exhausting. And so, um, you know, I take my hat off to The Leftovers because they managed to make this really compelling three season series about grief. And uh, and it's hard to stay in that place for a long time. 
And the last two shows on your list, the Chappelle Show, which is something that never really permeated uh, the UK. I've never seen it. I've seen many. I think I think I think I've seen all of his stand-up uh, shows. Um, and then the Watchmen, which was high on my list of ten, as uh, just a dynamite. Hopefully, just a one-off miniseries, but uh, just fantastic uh, television from, from start to finish. And, I think that's the latest edition from in your list. Actually, let's just double check. Yeah, I wanted to do. Yeah. A, I wanted to put a show on there that was pretty recent, if I could. And I wanted to do a show. Um, I wanted to make sure I had at least a, two or three shows on my list that had um, a diverse cast. So, um, uh, so, so Watchmen was kind of my um, my last one. It, it, it means a lot to me personally, but I understand. That if there's some people who maybe weren't that much in, weren't that into it, um, which is why I scored it a little lower than some of the other ones. Uh, and Chappelle's show is really important because um, that's a show that um, you know it, it, it's basically like if you saw um, the Chris Rock show when he was on HBO, it's very similar to that. Um, he would come out and talk to um, the audience and maybe even do like kind of a mini monologue, you know, say some funny things. And then he would kick to, um, to sketches, pre-taped sketches that he put together. And, um, you know, the first episode that he did, um, the, the end of the episode was this extended sketch about this um, white supremacist who turned out to be a blind black man who didn't uh, realize that he was black. <laughs> and so, uh, and, uh, and it's a really, it's like a 60 minutes kind of piece that, that's, you know, really, really funny. And, um, and I talked to Chappelle about it and he said that he got the idea to do it because he actually has a relative who was blind and black, but was very light skinned. And, um, and so like uh, he was on a bus once yeah, he was he was he was on a bus the, the day after Martin Luther King Jr. was killed in a black neighborhood, and this relative uh, heard people on the bus saying, you know, what's that white man doing on this bus? Why is he here? You know, doesn't he know what day it is? Why is he? Did? And he's like, yeah, what's that white man doing? And then it turns out they were talking about him. <laughs> and so he took that moment, you know, and he kind of spun it. Into this, into the, into this really funny. I think it was like a six or seven minute sketch. Um, oh, so, out. so yeah, you should, should definitely check it out. And once you see it, I think you'll understand. Like, like a lot of his later stand up, especially not not his most recent, but his like uh, killing them softly, and um, you know some of some of his stand up specials before he did the Netflix stuff. Um, you'll see, you'll understand it. It's you'll see where all that humor comes from because. Um, you know, especially the first season I thought was really strong. The third season was very weak because he was ambivalent about doing the show and then he eventually quit the show in the middle of production and uh, and went to South Africa and walked away from a $50 million deal with uh, Comedy Central. So yeah, the, 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 the third uh, season's episodes are pretty weak. They, they just cobbled together what they could from what they had filmed before he left. But the, the first two seasons are pretty good. Uh, well, let's go back to the wire. Um, first question we do tend to ask people is, um, do you have a favorite season? Um, um, yeah, my favorite season is the first season, probably, um, because, you know, it, it felt like that season had a, a focus. It was very much about the cops and about the gangsters and about, um, you know, the how, how the cops were working inside a system that was... Um, aligned against them in ways that they didn't understand or realize until they got to the end of the of the season um so i so i like that i like that i like that season a lot and uh and then the third season was sort of like the the continuation of the gangster story and wrapping it up um and uh, so i like that um as well I, I would say my least favorite season is probably the second season uh with the docs um because i felt like the storytelling kind of lost its focus um, and, and even though, and, and it was odd, I mean, I don't, <laughs> it was, it was weird. Like the white characters that they added didn't feel like, they didn't feel like they measured up, uh, to, to the other characters on the show. The white gangsters that they added didn't quite measure up. 
Um, so, so that felt a little lost. And the fifth season, I didn't like... Uh, well, I wouldn't say I didn't like it, but the fifth season I felt was a weaker season, in part because I think it got a little sidetracked. You know, um, David Simon has had some very personal experiences with journalism, and he wrote that stuff into the fifth season, which examines... Um, uh, you know, the newspapers, uh, the newspaper press in particular. And, um, you know, he named a couple of, uh, you know, terrible characters after people that he didn't like that were actually newspaper executives who worked at the Baltimore Sun when he was there. And and, and so I felt like, you know, it kind of, like if you know David Simon's story and you know journalism, then you see some score settling in some of the storytelling of the of the fifth season. Um so, so that's always been a, a troublesome one for me too. But, um, but even in the fifth season, for example, there are telling moments like um, Clark Johnson plays um, a, a city editor who, uh, um, you know, is also uh, he also writes stories, and so he wrote a story, and it was, uh, and he files it, and then he goes home, and it's like midnight, and he wakes up. And he can't remember if he spelled a name right. And so he calls uh, the paper at like midnight and catches the guy on the on the overnight copy desk and says, you know, did I spell that name right? And the guy looks it up. Yeah, you got it right. And he was like, oh, OK, good. Now, that might seem like an exaggeration, but as a professional journalist, I can tell you I have done that. <laughs> but 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 I but the thing that's funny about that is that I did that like maybe god you know 20 years ago like like nowadays you, you if you try to call a newspaper at midnight they probably you know they probably i mean unless it was the new york times or something there wouldn't be anybody there you know the the the, the copy desks uh and the newspapers don't work like that anymore um so it's so it's it's almost like like he was describing a type of newspaper that didn't even really exist much when the show aired like that was something that that existed maybe you know, five or ten years earlier. Well, when so, he wrote books. so, yeah. Well, when he when he was work actively working in journalism, so um, so that was that was a, another thing that was kind of weird. Is <clears throat> it was authentic, but it was authentic. Uh, it was it, it was authentic, but trapped in time a little bit. So, I mean, we're talking about season four, which is um, if you ask a question to quite a lot of people, season four seems just pop up quite a lot as their favorite season. Um, what are your thoughts on on season four and? Um, well, yeah, just I'll start with that. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, it's it's a it's a great season. It's a season that um, you know f uh, takes on the educational system, and we see some of the younger kids in the neighborhoods um, that we had seen that were ruled by you know drug gangs. We see these younger kids in school, and um, we really get a sense <clears throat> of how um, the city is failing them. You know, mm. the the. The school environment is chaotic, and it's hard for even good students to learn anything. And so uh, you're setting up these kids, uh, and then and then there's a lot of talk about social promotion, where people just get promoted be, to uh, according to their age, not whether or not they they know what they need uh, to know to be in the eighth grade or the seventh grade. And so you have these people who are just getting promoted through school. Who don't really know what they need to know and then yeah. when they graduate um, who's going to employ them um, you know they're going to if they even graduate what's probably yeah. going to happen is they will get bored and angry at school and they will uh, walk into the willing arms of the drug trade which is really the only employer that's hiring that's paying anything uh, in these neighborhoods um, and so, you know, David Simon and the writers and producers of The Wire were, were getting at another spoke in the wheel in terms of describing how the drug trade um, becomes the company store in a way. You know, um, you, you, you know, in the old days, there's, there was this idea of a company town where, you know, one company controls the mind that employs everybody. And mm -hmm. if you want a decent job, you have to be in good with the company uh, and, and they employ you. Uh, and, and that's what you do. You go to school and the minute you graduate high school, you, you might not even graduate high school. You go to work in the mines, you get a decent living and you support the company. Well, um, in these neighborhoods, 
you know the company store the company that runs the community is the drug trade and drug dealers uh, like avon barksdale and marla stansfield so uh, these people these these kids are coming out of a school system that's not really educating them and they're going right onto the streets and um there's no you know like traditional society has no place for them um, and if they're lucky, they're smart enough to maybe get to a community college and, and maybe actually learn some things and, and maybe get out of that cycle, but not many of them will. And, and um, you know, I think one reason why this, you know, the fourth season tackled this is, is because uh, David Simon's writing partner, Ed Burns, was a, he went from being a cop to being a teacher, the yep. way um, Press Belusky's, uh character does uh, on the actual show. So, um, so Ed Burns, just like he had a lot of stories about how important drug investigations got derailed by the bureaucracy and stupidity of the police department, he had a lot of stories about how the educational system was failing and the students that he saw when he was actually doing it. Uh, and, they, and they folded all of that into the, uh, into the fourth season. Are there any characters that, that stick out in your mind? It's almost to say, think about season four. What what kind of what are the kind of characters that form that pop into your mind or, or stories that pop into your mind? Uh, you know, um, we're see, we're sort of seeing Marlo Stansfield kind of emerge and mm. and and consolidate his power in the neighborhood. A, a more ruthless young gangster who is has a different way of going about things. The cops yeah. think he hasn't killed anybody because he has two assassins who work for him who uh, who kill people and then um, put them in boarded up houses so they're never discovered by the police, um, which I thought was kind of ingenious. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and those two those two assassins, um, it, it's it's such an odd it's such an odd uh, connection. But I wouldn't be surprised if they if they were uh, inspired a little bit by the twin assassins from the James Bond movie Diamonds Are Forever. That's what they right. that's what they were that's what they reminded me of. Um, and uh, and and they have a very unique, you know, kind of chemistry and and uh, and it's just really interesting to what Marlowe and those two assassins are to me are, are three of the most compelling sort of later characters that came to the wire, you know, uh, to to you know outside of the, the the first season, you know, to come to to come to come by later. Um, and then when, when you look at the kids, you know, the one kid who, um, you know, clothes were never washed, who smelled bad, who was kind of um, on the outs of the group, um, you know, I, I, and then to see how he ends up, you know, at the end of that season, um, it's just a story of hopelessness that so often is a part of these neighborhoods. And um, it, 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 you know, you feel for him the whole the whole season. The whole yeah. the whole time, you know, he's trying to do these little things to like help people out and stuff, even though he knows that his own life is a nightmare. And uh, um, you could tell he's a kid who has a good heart, even though he's just been stomped on by life his whole life. And um, so I you know, think a lot about that character. And I and I and I, but but I'm I'm much more drawn to the the gangster stories and the cop stories in the fourth season. Uh, I'm not as I, I don't find the educational stuff as compelling. Uh, maybe because those those schools were uh, the schools I went to when I was growing up. I, I wound up going to private schools when I was in fifth grade, but before that, I went to neighborhood schools, and they were on the verge of becoming what they are in the wire. And cool. uh, so, so it's it's t- it's tough for me sometimes to look at that stuff. My mother was a teacher in schools like that. I've been thinking, you know, how the route to everyone in the education system, the, the pupils and those who try and teach the kids, because it's um, you know, I've got friends in, in England who started out as teachers and they left because they just felt it was hopeless and I actually tell people not to be teachers. I'm like, no, 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 no. We need teachers. We do need teachers. And, and you know, where I live now in Florida, they have a way of creating um, schools that you apply to um, mm. that you can get into through a lottery um, where... Um, they require the parents to come to PTA meetings and they have dress code and all this kind of stuff. And if you don't do it, you get kicked out. And so it's a way of sort of self-selecting and, and elevating um, kids who have motivated parents yeah. out of the general schools 
um, which are still much better than the ones that we're seeing in the wire. I mean, they're much better. But, but um, you know, it, it's it's odd to see public school systems struggle to educate average children. Mm-hmm. You know, um, there really should be a way to give average kids the best educational experience possible. And in too many communities, we've seen the school systems kind of give up on the average kids and just try to figure out how to harvest the kids who are the smartest and the ones who are going to go on to college and the ones who are talented, uh, either athletically or uh, intellectually. And then, you know, the rest of the kids are just kind of left to fend for themselves, which um, is not is not great. Um, So um, the wire, you know, is telling that story in sharp relief in the fourth season. But some of those some of those um, some of those scenes are hard for me to watch. So uh, that might be one reason why I'm not as uh, as big a fan of the fourth season as I am with some of the other ones. I think what I really like, because most people do talk about the that connection with the kids when they think about season four, but your connection to the to the crime side, the, the, the gangs and the police is, is really interesting. So I just want to pick on that for a few more minutes before letting you go, if that's okay. Um, one, one of the things I love most about season four is we get to see two of the, two of the great detectives working together in Bunk and Bunk and Freeman. And uh, even Bunk is like, who's this Freeman guy? He's just he's just like way above um, you know, working out where Lex is buried working out where the tombs are. It's you know Bunk says at one point you're scaring me, Freeman, you're scaring me. Um, but that kind of kinship I, you know, I love that. Um, I love that aspect of, <laughs> of the season. Definitely. And and you know, there's always been a sense um, amongst the police that there are guys who have respect and there are guys who don't, right? Mm. There are guys who, and it's almost all guys, unfortunately, except for Kima, um, who can who can pull their weight and they're good police. And yeah. then there's guys who are kind of a waste of space or they're too stupid um, or they're just trying to, um, you know, tread, tread water until they can retire, you know, whatever. Uh, and so, so part of it, of course, is that you want to be good police, but then you have people, um, uh, like, like Freeman who take it to another level. And, and, Mm. you know, the interesting thing about that character is that it feels to me like the writers are saying, you know, in a just system, you know, he would be running things, you know, he would, he would, he would be a major, uh, at, at the very least. Right. Or he would be the deputy uh, uh, ops, you know, um, he, he would have that job. But because he's such a good investigator um, and he doesn't play the politics game, he refuses. Yeah. He could play it, but he refuses to play the political game. Um, you know, he squandered. And, um, you know, there's a um, the, I, you know, I can't remember. I think it's in the third season where um, uh they're, they have they have listening devices, uh, and they're listening to a, a cell phone by this really stupid guy who works for Prop Joe, and they're hoping he gets promoted so that he'll get closer to Prop Joe and he'll still <laughs> keep talking on his on his cell phone and they'll be able to get the information. And one of the cops, I I, I think this is third season because Presbaluski I think is the one who says it. He says, you know. Uh, if this guy was a cop, he'd be deputy commissioner by now. That's <laughs> what he was saying, <laughs> you know. But um, uh, you know, you see it. You see it in the fourth season. You know, mm. um, middle management in in the police uh, department is a thankless job, and and the people who wind up doing it are you know either sociopaths like um, the guy who's the deputy ops. Um, I'm blanking on his name. Yes. Rawls, yeah, they're either yeah. sociopaths like Rawls, or they're yes men, um, like the guys who are who are right underneath them. Um, and like the landsman. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and that, and that's an interesting team too, because there's actually a Jay Landsman who is actually in the show. He yeah. plays somebody else in the show, but plays uh, Dennis but they, he plays, uh, yeah, yeah, but they have a but they have an actor playing, um, you know, playing playing Jay. And and Jay, you know, he's not he's not a yes man. Jay is somebody who just understands the reality of his situation, and he knows what he needs to do to keep his bosses off his ass, and he tries <laughs> to encourage uh, his ample ass, as he even he would say, <laughs> and he knows um, how to encourage his detectives to give him what he needs to keep his boss off his ass and their ass, 
you know, and, and, and that's really his approach to it. He's like, hey, you know what the system is. You know what we got to do. Let's just do it. You know, and 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 uh, and that's one reason why McNulty, uh, you know, annoys him so much because he knows McNulty is smart enough to know how the job works, and he keeps yeah. tr- pushing against it, and he keeps trying to change it, and he's like McNulty, it's not gonna work, dude. Just submit, just do the shit the way it's supposed to be done, <laughs> and uh, and and McNulty keeps not doing it, and Freeman is just a more educated, refined less self-destructive version of McNulty when it comes to that. He, yeah. he, he also will not play that game, and he keeps finding ways to push back against the system, which ultimately makes him a pain in the ass to the people who, uh, who uh, actually run things. So, so the, the, you know, all of that sort of comes out in the fourth season, and that's, what I, that's, that's another reason why I like it a lot. I think that what you just said there kind of um, was a light bulb moment for me as to why maybe in the fifth season when McNulty's going through his is thing of finding homeless people and creating a false serial killer. Why Lester is keen to kind of jump on board with him, whereas right. he, outwardly he's seen as the voice of reason. Also, it's like you say, he's, he's a more refined version of Milton. He's like, if we're going to do this, let's do this properly. Let's not pussyfoot around. Well, Fre- Freeman is less self-destructive than McNulty, so he he has a limit and in fact mm-hmm. we see it we see it i mean the reason that he winds up back in homicide is because he just decides okay you know it doesn't make any sense for me to keep you know pushing this boulder up this hill uh he he will stop before and and you know he he experienced that you know he um when we meet him he's someone who kind of got crushed by the system yeah. and uh and 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 he learned from it so um so he's not willing to push it to the point of self-destruction the way McNulty is. McNulty will push it and push it and push it and he won't care who it hurts, um, even if it hurts him, even if it hurts people around him, he doesn't care, he'll keep pushing it. And Freeman's not like that. No, not at all. Um, are there any any key characters or scenes that you want to talk about in any in any, any of the wives? You know, someone says the wire, well, when the BBC asked you to write this article. Oh, yeah, about? yeah, yeah. Well, there's a lot, you know, um, I mean, What's gratifying for me is that, you know, I've been covering television since uh, 1997. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, you know, I covered The Wire the whole time it was on the air and, you know, interviewed David Simon quite often. I interviewed um, Dennis Lehane. I interviewed Lance Reddick. Um, I, I, I've talked to David a lot over the years. Uh, and so it's been gratifying to see that a lot of the observations that I had about the series when it was uh, just hitting the TV screens, that those observations turned out to be true and turned out to be even more so than maybe even I thought uh, when the show was airing. Um, and so it, it's been gratifying to see the show that I would champion and that a lot of people didn't really know about when it was airing, um, that now its legend has expanded and grown because it's gone on to these platforms that are much friendlier to consuming it. Um, you know, first it was DVDs and, and um, you know, on-demand um, plays on, on cable systems. And now, you know, it's available on HBO Max via streaming and people can really access it conveniently and, and they can binge watch it. Um, yeah. And so it, it's much more, I think, appealing to a modern uh, TV uh, fan sensibility than, than a lot of shows from that era. You know, they really were ahead of their time and how they were telling stories. So, um, so I mentioned, you know, um, two of my favorite scenes, you know, Snot Buggy and, and Bunny Coleman, um, you know, Coleman. laying down the law, uh, Buddy Colvin, yeah, it's, uh, laying down the law about, uh, you know, how policing is getting destroyed. Um, but a lot of my favorite scenes are just small scenes, you know, mm. um, there's a scene in the, in the fourth season where um you know marlo has lost a bunch of money at uh, a poker game and he goes into a convenience store and he he pays for water but he steals two lollipops making sure that the security guard there sees him do it and then the security guard comes out and he's like man it's sunday morning you think i like this job why you put me in a position where i gotta come over to you and talk about this i'm not trying to step to you but but why are you doing this? You know, I'm a man. Why you got to do this to me? And he looks at him and he says, you want this to be one way, but it's the other. 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then one of his assassins pulls up in in uh, in, a, in an SUV, and the guy and the security guard backs off, and he's like, "You want it to be one way, but it's another." And 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 that line just kind of resonates over the whole season because. Mm-hmm. You know, you you want the schools to be one way, but they're another. You want people want the drug game to work one way, uh, including you know um, you know uh, Bunny Bunny creates Amsterdam. You know, um, he he wants to be able to create a section inside, um, you know, he, the the place that he watches the the sector that he uh, controls, where people can just do drugs and they can be away from law-abiding citizens and the cops can just corral all the users and drug dealers in one place. Uh, but it's but it's another, you know. You want it to be one way, but it's another. Uh, it's another one of those things that could could be a mission statement for the show if you if you blew it up right. It is a lot of those incidental lines are that would be very easy to miss. But yeah. I, I agree with you, the way they can be haunting as well. Um, it's just they they always found ways of sort of restating what the show was about in, in mm. small ways. And if you were attuned to the themes of the show and what they're trying to say, then it would ha- when it would happen, you go, oh, huh, okay, you know? <laughs> and, and, and otherwise, you know, like, I'm sure that when I first saw that, I thought to myself, like, what was the point of that scene? Mm. You, know, well, you know, we already know Marlo's a badass. Like, why do we need to see that scene? Well, that scene is, uh, it, it, uh, you know, I think it comes... I don't think it's midway through the season. It's like it's season four, and, yeah. and I think it might be like a third of the way through the season. But it's just a, it's just a way to sort of remind you. You know, it happens at the beginning of a, at a, an episode, and it's just a way of sort of reminding you. No, no, this is, you know, this is what we're talking about. You know, this is how we're talking about it. You know, and they, they have very ingenious ways of sort of reminding the audience that this is what we're talking about. Yeah. You know? Eric, thank you so much for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Uh, where can people find you uh, on the internet and your writing and, and um, I guess, audio work as well? Uh, so sure, sure. Well, on, on Twitter, uh, I'm at Deggins, D-E-G-G-A-N-S. Uh, my personal website is ericdeggins.com, E-R-I-C-D-E-G-G-A-N-S. And uh, I have feeds there so you can see what I'm posting on Twitter and you can see what, I, what my Tumblr page has and you can keep track of my speaking engagements. I do a lot of um, speaking engagements and things like that, and you can keep track of that there. And then uh, you can go to npr.org and do a search on my name, and that will lead you to a landing page that um, has links to all the stories that I write for NPR. Um, you know, most recently I, I did a pretty tough commentary on Dave Chappelle's Netflix um, special, The Closer. And uh, I wrote a little bit about James Bond and uh, how he's an avatar for British colonialism. So <laughs> people might want to might want to might want to check that out. Um, so there's a lot of places to find me, and uh, um, you know I'm on Facebook and Instagram as well. If you do searches on Deggins, D-E-G-G-A-N-S, there's only there's really only one Deggins who's there's only this stuff. There's only a handful, and Eric Deggins, NPR, there's <laughs> only one, and that's yourself. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time. Um, Thank you. We are hoping. We are hoping to come to uh, travel over to Baltimore next year to uh, record season season five of our podcast um, and catch some people live. So obviously, Florida to Baltimore, it's on the same coast at least. It's quite far apart, but we'll, we'll let you know that we're heading over and maybe. Yeah, definitely. You know, NPR is, is based in, in uh, uh, Washington, D.C. So, oh, okay. um, you know, I do, I do get back there uh, every so often. And I'm sure you know that David Simon is working on a new uh, cop drama. We own the city. Uh, yeah, and in a way, I think it, it will be the continuation of The Wire because it's going to be about what happened. You know, Buddy Colvin gave this speech about how cops are forgetting how to be police. Yeah. And, and this story is about what happens to the cops who were trained by those cops who forgot how to be police because of the drug war. <laughs> and so uh, in a weird way, I think it's going to feel like a, like a continuation or a revival of The Wire in some odd ways. I know a lot of people are excited about it, and, and uh, we're speaking with um, Trey Cheney, who played Poots. I think he's got a role in this. Um, Domain oh, Paul great. Has a role in the City as well, so um, hopefully we'll get over there and yeah, maybe do some stuff about that, that show as well. I think it's due to come out before summer next year. Um, 
So yeah, look forward to it. So, yeah, I know they're deep into um, they're deep into uh, filming, finishing up filming right now. Yeah. Uh, so I think I think uh, I think we'll see it next year, uh, provided there's no uh, you know pandemic type delays uh, involved. Yeah. But that might be a good time for you to visit if if you can time it so that you know you're you're there when that when that shows they be. Um, Eric, thanks again for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Uh, guys, thank you so much to Eric Deggins for taking us through why the why is the best TV show. Uh, hitting a few points there, including um, the loss, we should say, of um, Michael K. Williams as well. Um, please do follow us, guys. We are online on Twitter and Instagram at the Why Stripped, which is one of the best places to find us. Uh, we'll be back very soon. Is that right, Dave? Uh, yeah, we will be back. We're working on season four. We're about halfway through. Uh, and don't forget, you can always leave us a message. We're still taking burner messages uh, on our burner phone. So head over to the Twitter page at The Wire Script or Instagram to get that uh, number. Or just send us an email, uh, burner at thewirestrip.com with a voice memo. Thank you very much, guys. See you later. just heard a stripped media production.